You're listening to the Donor Growth Podcast, forward-looking conversations for those who believe that donor growth is possible. Every week, we'll explore a thought-provoking topic to help build deeper relationships with more of your donors. We are your hosts, Luis Diaz and Mike Dirksen. Now let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Donor Growth Podcast, where you come every week to find bad jokes, comments about our audience in faraway countries, and lots of random thoughts on how to grow the participation of your donors, the engagement of your donors, how many donors you have, because we believe that you need to be prepared. There's stuff coming up of the horizon, and we think that nonprofits are well served by being resilient. And Mike helps a ton of nonprofits do that both through his content and his business. And today we're going to talk about that, right, Mike? How you built Build Good. Yeah. In last week's episode, we went through how you built a donor participation project and how you like cold DM'd thousands of people, basically. And I walked oh, away. I walked away from that being like, oh man, I need to be a lot more gritty. This guy's out here just like slaying, you know, he's 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 doing the outreach. I need to do more of that. That's that's horrible. I yes, donor participation project will go down in history with that, unlike Build Good, that's a reputable company that will never DM you. You'll never get that little pop-up from Mike saying, Hey, you wanna talk? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not true. Since since last week, I've been I've been I've been on LinkedIn, just like messaging people. <laughs> hey, folks, we do these recordings on Zoom sometimes, and you can't see Mike, but his thumbs are literally bleeding from all the tapping that he's been doing <laughs> to send direct messages. More seriously, more seriously, I'm personally very excited about today's talk because I'm a little bit of, of a backstory. We met. What was it like a year and a half ago? I was a practicing fundraiser at a nonprofit at a higher education institution in Pennsylvania in the US. And Mike had this firm. And to me, this was like this magical thing where how can you like have a vision for what fundraising should be like and then just make it happen and find nonprofits that will pay you and come along with you on the, in that vision. So today we're going to learn a whole lot about that. Can I start with the origin story, Mike? How did you get started maybe generally i imagine you transitioned from being a practitioner yourself maybe a freelancer then to building your business what's the story behind that yeah so i got into fundraising kind of like everyone in that i didn't want to get into fundraising and then you kind of just get into it so i was leading communications and marketing at a homeless service provider and i said you know i'll take the job but i just don't want to do any of the fundraising so i in fact i asked to report to the ceo instead of the director of development power play and and i did so but then over time i started working very closely with the director of development and just a fantastic person and we got along so well and started really actually enjoying the fundraising part of it and the first time that that happened is when when I was when I changed the words to an email and it raised twice as much money. And I was like, whoa, like this is this is cool, right? So went all so, in. So, on, oh, yeah, fuck. explain this. It sounds like a juicy detail. So this was an email that maybe the organization had been sending regularly or something, and you came in and you changed the language on it. 
How yeah, that? yeah, that's right. It was one of those, for those of you who don't know, like homeless service providers use very templated appeals for the most part. Same with emails, because it's very seasonal. You've got an Easter appeal, then you've got a summer appeal, then you've got a Thanksgiving appeal, and you've got a Christmas appeal. And you follow that cycle because it works. And like, it's hard to beat it. Like this has been proven and tested pretty much all across North America. And we worked with a large direct response firm that was running this program for us. And what bothered me about, well, A, I learned a ton from them. So I'm very grateful for them. I don't want to come across the wrong way. What bothered me about working with that firm is that it always seemed a little bit like there's this like black box or like this black magic where you, the client, couldn't, you know, you couldn't know too much about things. They would just kind of be like, no, just trust us. Like, you know, this is all an art and a science, and there's a lot of math involved. And so, for example, when we did donor acquisition, we would send them our list of lapsed donors, and they would then rent a list of new donors and mix in our lapsed donors, but they would never tell us which of our lapsed and super lapsed donors were included and which ones they excluded. They just said, we'll figure out who to include and who not to include, but they would never even let us know. So we couldn't even calculate the response rate for lapsed and super lapsed because we didn't know who was included. So we were reliant on them to even like give us all the data reports for us to even know how our fundraising was performing. So so that always bothered me. So I slowly started to like mess with stuff, right? And be like, uh-huh. well, we'll take some stuff and like I'll do it myself. And so that's how that's how I started to to get really more nerdy about it. And that's also kind of the origin story of Build Good because I was like, man, if I ever do this as a like as an agency, I would want to do it differently. And then I it's like a cocky like 25 year old right like it's like oh i could do this and 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 also i've noticed the trend among entrepreneurs you were a horrible client i don't know how you were as an employee and you turned out to be you know a pretty good agency leader so it's not the first time i've seen this i would say i was a terrible client i was a great employee i want to be clear about that i'm not like a you know a a disturber of things at all but yeah Uh, Yeah, I I wasn't, I probably wasn't a great client, but then I had this opportunity to leave and to take a salary cut and become the executive director of a small shop. And that sounded like a fantastic idea on all fronts. And it was a small place that where the budget was $180,000 and I was the first employee. Well, but I figured, Hey, this is going to be my version of Lewis's market lab. This is going to be like, I get to experiment and see, you know, kind of like prove myself. I get to be gritty. I can see if all the stuff that I've learned at a big shop, if that translates to a small shop. And it turns out some of it didn't, and then a lot of it didn't. <laughs> but uh, I spent the next you know eight, nine years doing that. And we took it from 180K to 1.7, 1.8 million in revenue in about six years. Right? And during that time, I had kept my previous employer as a client on a freelance basis. So when I left, the CEO said, hey, why don't you keep writing my weekly column in the paper? And then that turned into, hey, why don't you help with the mid-level donor program? And like, it just kept kept adding to it. Mm-hmm. And some other people I was helping as well. So I, I started Narrative Communications, which was the first iteration of Build Good. And that was just myself. And, and that's it. Awesome. So you were offering your moonlighting as an ED. That's so interesting. I mean, it sounds like it was practically pulled out of you, right? It just, you know, it kind of happened just because of the way that that your career developed. When 
did you know that it was the right time to put a close to the ED executive director part of your career and go out on your own? Yeah, pretty much right before COVID hit. I had already let the board know that this was going to be, you know, my last year. We were already planning for transitions and I had started, had already gone down. I already had an arrangement with the board that I could start build goods. So there was a few reasons why. One is I was traveling a bunch. This was a small international development organization. I was traveling at the peak like six to eight weeks per year, which yeah. was fine. I got to see a bunch of places awesome. and it was great. But I was married and we wanted to have kids and you know we had our first and then we wanted to have mm-hmm. more. So it just became not feasible to be in that job. So I wanted more flexibility mm-hmm. and I'd always wanted, like the goal was almost always, almost always from the beginning to someday do my own thing and do this for other people. Not because I thought that, you know, we could do it better necessarily, or because I thought mm-hmm. that our point of view was necessarily so differentiated. Mm-hmm. Just because I wanted to try it on my own and see and give it a go. Yeah. I mean, been there too. Something I see a lot in founders too is how important it is to have a passion. And it's more like what you said, it's not so much that you think there's a huge opportunity, but maybe a little bit of that, but also the fact that you kind of just really enjoy the work. And that's what's going to keep you going through the low moments. Right. You know, that at least at the beginning, until you have a whole ton of momentum. Then I guess at that point, you know, you hate the work and it's all about the money. <laughs> I'm joking. But why did you choose direct response? Was that the thing that you said I could do this day in, day out in my sleep? You know, it's I have passion, knowledge, and it just comes easily to me. Is that the reason? Partly. I personally love direct response. I love ads. I love when somebody <laughs> tries to sell me something. I am a little bit fascinated just by like the whole field of persuasion. And, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a door-to-door canvassers who are with an organization, I'm like, yes, the next five minutes are going to be amazing. This is going to be so good. I, I talk to telemarketers who are fundraising, right? I just want to see how they go about this. I enjoy that. That in itself, though, wouldn't be enough for me to be like, hey, this is how where we're going to stake our claim. I firmly believe that our product and the service that we offer is is far and above a lot of direct response shops. I'm not saying that to be cocky. I feel super unqualified to even talk about being a business owner because we're so early in. So I just, I don't take it that way. But what I mean is I just believe so firmly in our approach of doing it a little bit more creative, a little bit more human, a little bit less templated, a little bit less like every other piece of direct mail or email. So that's part of it. But also... Mm -hmm. Having worked in as a fundraiser in-house, I believe so firmly in the one-on-one and the one-to-few of doing that really well in-house and mm-hmm. being able to outsource some of the one-to-many. I don't think fundraisers should be in meetings talking about the copy. I think fundraisers mm-hmm. should be in meetings talking about how are you going to engage more people and lead with engagement. I think they should be joining the donor participation project. I think they should be, <laughs> you know, talking to more donors. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the number one indicator, your fundraising success is the strength of the relationship with your donors. And the number two indicator is the quality of your business decisions. So I don't think spending a lot of time worrying about copy and about formatting for the email and about all of those other things, I don't think you should be doing that in-house when you can have professionals do that for you 
and you can you can get all your time back and be spending that with donors. I just believe so firmly in that, and I think that we are a good fit for people who have that same point of view. And so, if I can find those people, those are the people that I want to work with. If if I can find people who are saying we would love to be more engaged with our donors, and to do that, we would like to hire you to run our direct response in a very creative and human and caring and thoughtful way because you go about your craft with love and care. And that's what we want. We don't want just a machine that splits up direct mail. We want our donor comms at mass to build a ton of trust. We want them to be thoughtful and meaningful and caring. And we want to spend all of our time being thoughtful and meaningful and caring one-on-one with donors. That makes a ton of sense. Plus, very often, for whatever reason, it's the most junior member of the team that gets assigned to doing these emails if they're happening in-house. And I can just kind of feel through the computer screen how you know you believe that there is an art to it. There is knowledge. There, you know, there are several decades of experience and accumulated expertise behind that. I mean, you can improve these one-to-many communications a whole lot, right? And sometimes yeah. if you just have the entry-level position, writing emails, you're not going to get the best results. Yeah. And there's definitely times when it makes a lot of sense to in-house your direct response and your fundraising communications. Um, mm-hmm. What happens when you in-house though, is that you're still working with an agency. You're just now working with your in-house agency. You have hired a person or two people or three people, or you are working with a lot of freelancers and you're you're hurting cats a little bit, right? Like like this guy's doing copy, this girl, she's doing the design, this person is getting our data ready, this person is project managing it. And so you're, you're trying to keep that whole machinery going. Mm-hmm. But what happens is in 18 to 24 months, the person who was in charge of that moves on or the person who was doing the writing moves on or the person who was doing the design moves on. So you are in... In f- you are running an in-house agency with the same HR problems that come with any other agency, which means that you have to constantly be replacing people when they leave, hiring people when they leave, training people so that they they get a lot better at this, right? So you've got to be resourcing them, sending them to conferences or making sure they can join like learning communities or even bringing in coaches and trainers or consultants sometimes train them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... At one, at some point, it starts to make sense to be like, well, if we're just in-housing an agency, let's just hire an agency. We get the benefit of the stability of the agency. The agency will deal with all of that. They will mm-hmm. replace the people that leave. They will deal with the people problems. They will train mm-hmm. their people. They will invest in, in having a really good product and service and offer. Mm-hmm. And, and we just get to benefit from that. Now, the other benefit of working with an agency is that an agency is working with many clients and a good agency, hopefully, is pattern matching and getting insights from client A over here to client B over here. They're realizing, oh, these people are doing this. Maybe these people could do that as well. And so you are getting the benefit of the collective knowledge and insights that an agency is gathering from a pool of clients and from a, from a little bit of a bigger data set. Awesome. So we've talked about the client side perspective a whole lot. Small digression here to point out something that Mike said earlier. If you are a telemarketer, you're running a telemarketing operation, please reach out to me. I'll give you Mike's phone number. And I hope everybody in the fundraising world is ringing your your phone off because you sound like somebody who will end up making a gift. Call me. Uh, Yeah. 
<laughs> you know what? I might make I might make a gift because I want to end up on your mailing list. And I keep this huge box beside me. You can't see it. Just full of mail that I get. So it's all part of the plan. I'm looking for mine. I think I have it in my car trunk yeah. for some reason. Uh, in your so... car trunk. You just go mailbox to mailbox, raiding people's mail, like like direct mail fundraising. <laughs> yeah. yeah building a horrible reputation for the donor participation project i know that's your real plan but mike circling back to the funny situation you are in we've talked about the client perspective let's talk about the product direct response you've gone on the record a couple of times not a whole lot but to say that there's a lot of hype around direct response and you know i don't say you, you don't believe it endorse it but that you have a different angle or a different perspective on what direct response needs to achieve. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So direct response, first of all, I don't know that we will still be a direct response firm five or 10 years from now. So I am not, I, I am not planting my flag and saying direct response is the, the be all and end all. I, I just think that humans, donors, sometimes, you know, they like to give when they like to give. And sometimes that is in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Sometimes it's on a phone call. Sometimes it's in an email. Sometimes that's in a direct mail appeal. And sometimes they see an ad and they click on it. So I, I think direct response is a, it's still very, very effective. Every donor file I've seen direct response is still very effective if done well. Our whole philosophy and point of view is first time giver to legacy lever. So align your entire investment and fundraising around that, right? How can we grow the value of the donor file by retaining donors? Now, the hype around direct response, I think, comes in two parts. Number one is the acquisition hamster wheel. And this is mostly for large shops. This wouldn't apply to most of our clients. But you would be surprised. Some very big name brands that everybody recognizes if I said them, their retention rate is awful. Like some of them are talking below 10%. And why? Yep. Because they've built the entire machinery around direct marketing. And just getting new donors in the door. They just churn through lists and are trying to get lower dollar gifts. And they're not set up or they haven't prioritized actually retaining some of those people and investing in the relationship and putting relationship first because they don't need to. Because direct response is still working well enough for them that they can, for very little people investment, they can just be sending out tons of mail and and buying tons of ads and fueling the machinery that way. So that that's some of Which the is interesting, around. right? Because yeah, and that's interesting because that costs. You said people investment, but it costs a ton of money. I mean, to keep that going, no, it costs a ton of money. You just don't have to deal with as many people. Okay. And they're in the rhythm. And I think it's easier to switching costs to trying something new might be too hard, mm -hmm. right? And and agencies are a little bit like agencies are squatters. Like they come into your place and they don't leave. So the big agencies are very, very good, very good at once they're installed in those organizations. Like they slowly, well, like I said before, like we were reliant on an agency for all of our data work. And that alone, mm -hmm. that alone was a huge switching cost because we hadn't built up the expertise in house to do any of that. So 
Mm-hmm. So big agencies are very good at that. So so that's part B is the other hype comes, oh, if you just change this copy, you will raise twice as much. Or if you just do this, or if you just optimize for, for the headline of the email and you have mm-hmm. big tech companies who are buying you donation platform software, who are selling you like donation platform software, who are saying, yeah. oh, you know, landing page conversion is so bad. If you just install this thing and if you just have Apple Pay, everybody loves Apple Pay. If you just have Apple Pay, like your donations are going to go way up. And A, a lot of those folks have never actually worked as a fundraiser. And, mm-hmm. and B, yeah, you're optimizing sort of the last mile conversion, which I think is important. We do some of that. But what you're forgetting is that direct response in my opinion, like 80% of the success of direct response is what happens outside of direct response. And so let me characterize this, Mike, and you tell me if this is accurate, quote unquote, traditional practice around direct response has been optimized for super big stops. And then maybe this same template model was sold to smaller shops where it just, it never worked super well. But mm-hmm. now it's disastrous, right? Because, yeah. you know, if, just because of the current environment, if on top of all of that, your retention rate is so low, it just doesn't make sense. It's just always going to be more than it's worth. And you're going to end up just not doing anything. And you're kind of the agency for the 90% of the industry. That's not 95% of nonprofits that are under that mega level where you also think that they should change, but it's just going to be harder. Yeah. So most of our clients are, I think our biggest client might be around 50 million. And then our smallest client is around 2 million in revenue. But most of our clients are sort of between a 5 to 15 million in revenue. So not small, small shop, but not big shop. Mm -hmm. They've managed to break past that 2.5 million ceiling, which is very hard to do. A lot of shops get stuck at the 2.5 million. So they've Mm -hmm. managed to break through that. But now they're in like a very, very messy middle where you're not a small shop, but you're not a big shop yet. And that's where it makes sense to start bringing on an agency. That, That makes a lot of sense. Something else you don't like, commodity appeals. I've read something that you wrote about that. What is that? Commodity appeals are, and and this is, listen, a direct response fundraiser will tell you they work. And so, you know, we worship at the feet of results. So why change it? And I get that point of view. Totally. I hear that. Commodity appeals are basically, well, templated appeals. Like for, for certain causes, a lot of poverty related causes like homelessness, like food banks, sometimes healthcare, they are templated generic appeals that work. They're not necessarily unique to the organization. They're kind of generic. It's a little bit of an annual giving appeal. Mm-hmm. The offer isn't all that specific, although sometimes it's give a meal for $3.94. I'm, yeah. I'm not a fan of them because I think you could be more creative and you could be doing more. And you mm-hmm. could be, even in your mass comms, I think you can be building more trust with donors and pulling them closer in and giving them a better treatment. That's in short, that's the that's why I don't like commodity appeals, but I should say they work. Like there's lots of commodity appeals that work and are workhorses. And so this is not this is not saying they don't work. This is just purely a personal opinion, a philosophical point of view. Interesting. So in the context that I grew up in fundraising, there's something called the ugly betty appeal, which is almost like an invoice, really. And 
So it's that type of thing, right? Just appeals that maybe shops have seen that work and then recommended them to other clients and everybody's just doing them. Okay. Yeah. I mean, right now we're recording this at the end of January. I just love getting all my 2023 gift renewal appeals that are all the same as last year. And I keep them all and I compare them. So I know it's the exact same pack. And it's like, hey, it's 2023. It's time to renew your gift for the year, right? That's mm-hmm. a commodity appeal. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about product. We're going to go into other sides of your business. But, you know, there's a way to bring people in that's called pattern interruption, right? Where if you're always doing the same thing, you know, people are eventually going to tune out. Do you think that's what's happened in the sector? Like over time, you know, 20, 30 years of the same renewal appeal in January? Yeah. And it's amazing for people who don't do that. Like it's so easy to have a pattern interrupt. If, if everybody's sending out the same sort of looking emails and the same sort of looking direct mail appeal, it's pretty easy for you to do something else and to stand out. And it's as easy as, you know, nobody can see this, but like it's as easy as just using a really big envelope with nothing on it. Like, uh-huh. like you've got to open this thing. You don't know what's in it. It's a big envelope. If somebody sends me a big envelope, I'm opening it up. <laughs> now, <laughs> big, is, big is better. Build good. Yeah. Well, well, like you said, it's a pattern interrupt, right? Does it cost more money? Yeah, it costs more money. You're going to have to get over that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay. So do you have any other thoughts about what you're bringing to the industry on the like product side of things, you know, what you're delivering to nonprofits before we move on? Yeah. I mean, what we're bringing to the industry, that sounds so cocky. And again, feel wholly disqualified to be talking about this. And in any kind of, if anybody's listening to this, don't, please don't take this as like, oh, this guy has really figured out how to do it. It's like so far from the truth. Louis, the other day you said things that you're doing right now, you think it's going to work in like 36 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same here. I have no idea if what we're doing is is whatever. We're just trying stuff out. And I hope in 36 months from now, will have been like, man, that was a good idea. But here's what we're doing right now. We've launched something called the Academy. We get discovery calls from shops who cannot afford an agency, but who would like to work with an agency. We put our pricing on the website. We're very transparent about our pricing. We don't do any of the like, you know, get you on five different calls and then, and then, you know, try to Mm -hmm. whatever, have hidden fees with like markups and stuff like that. So we're very transparent about our pricing, but even so people, people call us and it seems like, you know, they're not in a place where they can afford that, or they are looking for more coaching and training, not really for an agency that does it for you, but they've got a new employee and then that employee is in in charge of annual giving, direct response, donor comms. And they're like, Hey, can you just like train this person up for us? Do you have something for that? Mm-hmm. So the thing we're trying and the reason why I don't know if it's going to be a success is because it messes with our positioning. Right now, people think of us as an agency. We launch uh-huh. a, new, a new offer and all of a sudden, you now occupy two spaces in somebody's mind, right? But it's called the Academy. It's a year-long, 12-month coaching program, essentially. And you get two weekly group calls, one with our copywriter, one with myself, and tons of training and support and resources and templates. Plus, we will walk you through campaigns that we are running for clients and how they performed and are thinking behind it. And you know, by the end of the 12 months, you will 
A, if you were able to apply what you've learned, you will have very likely engaged a lot more donors than before. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as a result, raise more money. B, mm-hmm. you will be a lot better positioned in your career because you will have gained a ton of practical knowledge in a span of 12 months. Awesome. So huge retention tool also for shops, right? That are having so much trouble hiring now. Hire somebody, know it's going to it eliminate risk, know it's going to work well, almost you know guaranteed twice a week, weekly coaching. That, oh my goodness, I kind of wish I'd known about this earlier in my career. I would have tried to sign up. Okay. So you're experimenting, you have a point of view. At what point did you decide when you did this transition into build good to to start building out a team? That really fascinates me because I think it's for a lot of freelancers, consultants, operators that go out on their own. That transition is very difficult. Yeah. So for a long time, um, before I started Build Good and I had narrative communications for a long time, I really liked the idea of, you know, digital nomads. That was a big idea. Like Tim Ferriss to four hour work week. And I was like, man, if I can build a business, it's just me, you know, and I, I can go traveling with the family every now and again, and I can build this business. And then, and then I was going for a walk in Ocean City, New Jersey, because my family was my in-laws place that we were there for the summer. And, and I was trying to get away. So I was going for a walk and I was listening to Seth Godin had something called Startup School. This okay. was years and years ago, but he recorded the whole thing. It was an in-person event, but he recorded the whole thing. And somebody got permission from Seth Godin to put those recordings out as a podcast. And you can still find them. There's only like 10 or 15 episodes. It's called Startup School, Seth Godin. The audio isn't the best, but I was listening to it. And he was talking about the difference between having a practice and a business. A doctor has a practice and everything relies on a doctor. And if that doctor can't work that day or he gets cancer or whatever, then that the practice is done. There's nobody else who can do his job. <laughs> An entrepreneur has a business and a business is you build systems and processes and you build a team that can then Base essentially like do more work and it's more reliant on systems and processes and it's a little bit less reliant on the practitioner who started it. Mm-hmm. And that really clicked for me for a variety of reasons. And one is that I'm a diabetic, so I'm always like, oh man, what if something happens to me? You know, what how's this whole thing gonna mm-hmm. work? How's family support gonna work? So I was like, mm-hmm. man, it better to build a team and to try to build something lasting and enduring that isn't entirely reliable on me. And so, mm-hmm. so uh, made the decision right then and there, the moment I can, I'm going to start bringing on the next person. And before I knew it, I was forced to do that because we were we were adopting our second child from South Africa. And we got the call and it's like, okay, in two weeks, you're going to have to go to South Africa for two months. And I had all these clients I was servicing. So I hired Becky, who now runs our client service. And I was like, Becky, I'm going to South Africa for two months. Here's the keys to the place. Oh my Um, my goodness. (laughs) Call me if you... And it was to her credit, I got super, super lucky hiring her. And to her credit, she just like owned it and ran with it. And it is now, she's like second in command of the business, right? So she, she runs client service. That's 
Fascinating. So it was always the goal, right? So in, in this this your second business, you you always kind of wanted to do this. And that's so interesting where it is a matter, it sounds like it's a matter of choice that you all made. And you're trying to systematize yourself out of the way, essentially, right? So put all your knowledge into a knowledge base and put all your processes and know-how into SOPs and train people. And because you're so good at training, you've created an academy. Also offer that training externally. That that's so, fascinating. So yeah, the, the analogy. Like I just want to jump in there. The academy is. I'm not good at training, and the academy is a forcing function for me to create training that I should create for the team anyways. So mm-hmm. if I charge for it, and like there's this expectation that other people are relying on it, I am now forced to create all these trainings that I should be creating for the team anyways. And there's the tyranny mm-hmm. of the urgent. There's always something more urgent than create a training for the knowledge base, right? Always, always. There's always something mm-hmm. more urgent. Well, now there isn't. Now the urgent thing is delivering on the academy. And if we do that well, that's that's also a training for our team. Fascinating. So you're still kind of the, the scrappy startup at heart. That's amazing. What let's go on to we've talked about how you see yourself in the market. We've talked about in, so kind of the product piece. We've talked about the business and team and operations piece. Talk let's talk about I mean marketing, whatever you want to call it, sales. You see a lot more gray area than most, right? In, in all of these functions. That's how we met, right? Because you were posting a whole lot on LinkedIn. What is your view on this? And what are you doing to get the word out about Builder? Yeah, so I see the parallels between fundraising and sales. There's like everywhere, <clears throat> and I think we don't do a lot of cold outreach yet. We haven't. We haven't yet. So mostly, mostly the way I look at it is the same way you look at it, which is to create demand number one and number two to be helpful. So, what does create first, demand mean for you? So creating demand means that you can create demand, or you can capture demand, or you can convert demand. So capturing demand that somebody is looking for a fundraising agency and you have ads in the market and you know they Google you and they find you and they're one of the people that they reach out to to get a quote. That is capturing demand. Somebody already had intent to go and hire a fundraising agency. Converting demand is just like how you run the sales process and then you convert that person. But um, what we're focused on is creating demand, which is somebody might not know that they want to work with a fundraising agency, or they might not be in the market to work with a fundraising agency. So we are going to make sure to be as helpful as possible consistently over time so that when it's time to work with a fundraising agency, not only are we one of the people they might reach out to because we're top of mind, but we are also trusted because we've been delivering value for two or three years. So that's just in a nutshell, the way that we're doing marketing, which is mostly just trying to be helpful on LinkedIn. And with our Build Good Fundraising podcast, we've got this podcast, we're getting more into YouTube. And that's so far, that's all we've been doing. We haven't done any paid ads. We haven't done cold outreach much. Every now and again, I do email people. We just haven't done much of that yet. That's so interesting. And it's funny that this, I think, is one of the big differences between a nonprofit and you as a business owner or you know, us as business owners is that we, in some ways we are in a position where if we want to take that bet on something that can work two to three years out, we can. That's, that's 
typically hard to do in a nonprofit. Like you need to get those dollars then right. cycle or else, yep. you know, people are not getting paid and all types of situations we, we've both been in. Right. Yeah, exactly. So as a direct response shop, we haven't actually done any direct response for ourselves. Well, and- I mean, okay. So let's talk about that. Where do you think direct response is going? The work of the agency is going because I mean, you yourself, if, you know, are not doing direct response for yourself. <clears throat> so you're doing something else. Do you think the whole industry is going toward that something else? Yeah, n- not fully, but I think over time, yes. And, you know, you talk about this a whole bunch, which is community as a marketing strategy. We just had Mark Schaefer on our podcast, who he believes that is like the future which is community-based marketing and that direct response is going to work less and less. I think there will probably always be a place for direct. It's too, I don't mean it's too tempting as in like, it's too tempting for somebody to do it in-house. I think, I think direct response is tempting for, for us when we see it, if it's, if it's the right offer at the right time or something we were interested in, it's so easy to click on it or or to be influenced by it and and that's not a bad thing like you know it can be very helpful some of the retargeting even though we're like oh how how did they know that i was looking for shoes cuz it's still just... helpful no right. it's helpful yeah but but it can be helpful so i don't think it's going away but i think more and more direct response will be capturing demand not creating demand and so you know, we'll build good ever run ads. Very likely will we run ads to people who've been watching my LinkedIn videos for a long time? Yes. Those are the people we would run ads to. We've already created demand. Now we're going to use ads and direct response to, to try to capture it. Yeah, that makes a, a whole lot of sense. And the reality is for the foreseeable future, you're going to have to ask yeah. in anything, right? And this in fundraising, it's just the who you ask and the when you ask that we th- that you think is changing. Excellent. Yeah. You're also, before we we sign off, you're doing something that I find really interesting, which is you're taking that incredible knowledge of yours, your knowledge of the history of direct response, the knowledge of what's working right now, your observations and analysis, and you're turning it, you're codifying it into, quote unquote, a system, your point of view of fundraising. Maybe we we close off the, the interview on how you're building Build Good with that. I mean, is this like your crowning achievement on you know your contribution? Is it going to be a book with your face on it? I mean, I hope this isn't my crowning achievement. I hope the best is yet to come. Okay. You know, I believe in eternal growth. And let me explain what I mean by that. I used to be like economists who talked about eternal growth here. I'm, I'm going to touch your economist heart here, Lewis. Economists <laughs> who talk about you know, eternal growth. And then some economists are like, that's impossible. You can't grow forever. And there's this whole debate. I actually think I used to not think that way. And I used to think that the world was a fixed pie. And if I have a lot, then some that means somebody else goes hungry. And there is a school of thought in economics that thinks that way. I no longer think that way. I believe in eternal growth even if it's economically impossible. And I'm sure it is impossible. I don't know. Who knows? But Every time I look back, I'm just amazed at how much I've I've grown over a couple of years in my thinking. And I can mm-hmm. spot points like the point of view that I used to have and that I have now is just like always evolving. So I believe in personal growth at all times, I guess. And mm-hmm. so so I hope this is my crowning achievement. I hope that a few years from now I will have I'll be I have evolved and I will have more insights and hopefully. Hopefully, I've been wrong a lot more. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's this whole thing about like consultants. It's like you tell a client, no, oh, I think it's your best bet. And they're like, yeah, that would never work for our donors. And then my immediate reaction, I always have to correct my internal thoughts because I'm like, I need to have the conviction of my beliefs. That is partly what makes mm-hmm. a good advisor. And at the same time, mm-hmm. I need to hold those beliefs loosely enough because I could be wrong. And any time I've ever learned anything is when I was spectacularly wrong. I used to be a 25-year-old kid who loved social media, who thought it was the future, blah, 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 everything digital, digital, digital. I went to the CEO that I talked about who I asked to report to, and I said, let's kill the direct mail program. Let's go all in on digital. And Mm -hmm. to his credit, he said, I'm willing to do that. Right now, direct mail is raising 3.5 million. You think it can replace that? And I was like, oh, don't put that on me, bro. He's like, well, okay, well, then let's let's talk about this, right? And so uh-huh. he helped me. So every time I've been spectacularly wrong is when I've learned mm-hmm. the most. Mm-hmm. So what we're codifying is called the fundraising flywheel. But I hope that in a few years from now, we will have we will have new insights to add. But we just need a framework. We need a framework to talk about what we do. So we call it the flywheel. Okay. It's it's not a funnel. A funnel is optimized toward conversion. A flywheel is optimized toward the relationship. It's optimized toward keeping the momentum going and the energy going. So mm-hmm. we call it the fundraising flywheel because it's all about retaining donors. It's got five parts. It's listening to donors. Then it's engaging. Then it's asking. Then it's celebrating donors' generosity. And then it's reporting back in a real-time and responsive way. And you've got to run that Love flywheel that. continuously. I love that. And the longer it runs, the stronger it gets, right? Yeah. The longer it runs, the not only the faster it gets, but the easier it is to maintain because it's got momentum. So you'll be, you'll be retaining more donors, raising more money with less effort. Well, awesome. So folks, we invite you as always to check out Mike's fundraising flywheel, buildgood.com. Check him out. Contact us on LinkedIn and we'll catch up with you next week. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Donor Growth Podcast, brought to you by the Donor Participation Project and buildgood.com. If you found today's episode helpful, please help us by sharing it with a friend, posting about it on LinkedIn, or giving it a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, remember that donor growth is possible.